Hi everyone, welcome to the fourth episode of Barking from the Rooftops. My name is Jim Gillis. Today's guest, Kim Brophy, is an applied ethologist and certified dog behaviour consultant via the IAABC. Kim has an amazing set of credentials and achievements. Her book, Meet Your Dog, The Game-Changing Guide to Understanding Your Dog's Behaviour, is excellent and I would highly recommend it to both dog professionals and dog owners too. Kim is an applied ethologist, member of the International Society for Applied Ethology. She's owner of the awarded Dog Door Behaviour Centre. She's a board member of the Asheville Humane Society, a certified professional dog trainer and member of the Association of Professional Dog Trainers. Kim has pioneered a comprehensive framework known as LEGS, which stands for Learning Environment Genetics and Self. And this is to explain all four aspects of dog's behaviour, which goes beyond the current ABA methods of evaluating behaviour and should prove a very interesting discussion. So today we're going to delve into this deeper by discussing bridging the world of ethology and applied behaviour analysis. Join me in welcoming Kim to the podcast. Hi, thanks for having me. Hi there, can you hear me okay? Yes, I can. Thank you. Great stuff. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. This is very exciting, and and it's it's fun to talk to someone with a Scottish accent. This is that's a, that's a new one for me, so this is super fun. Good stuff, and hopefully, hopefully it goes down okay. Um, well, I, I, I welcome to the show first of all, and thank you so much for for doing this, Kim. I wonder if you can maybe just start with a little bit of background on yourself. How long have you been in dog training for, Kim? Um, I've been doing this since I graduated in two in ninety nine. So um, when I first graduated with my applied ethology degree, my first kind of uh, professional application was as the executive director and then um, also behavior program manager because there was only like a staff of three for a very small um, rescue organization that was kind of riding the first wave of the no kill movement. And so we were pulling dogs out of a traditional high kill shelter and then working with them behaviorally and then matchmaking them in homes. Um, And so I did that for a few years before I decided I wanted to just focus on the behavior work side rather than the sheltering and rescue side professionally. And I've been doing it ever since as the dog door. Great stuff. And you have dogs yourself, Kim? Yes, yes. I have have three. I have um, a toy mix, a herding and natural dog mix. He's an American Eskimo and cattle dog mix. Um, and then I have a four-year-old Pyrenees Newfoundland mix, actually with a little bit of golden retriever in her. We just got our DNA test back. But Good stuff. Good stuff. Yeah. And what are their names? Um, Casey is the big one, the Pyrenees Newfoundland. And um, then Rocky, or we call him Rock Lobster, is also like his full name or whatever um, from when he was a puppy because he was super snippy snappy. And so we called him a lobster. Um, and he's the cattle dog, um, American Eskimo mix. And then Prim, who my kids named because um, Hunger Games was a thing at the time that we got her. So named her after the sister. Um, she is a, uh, yeah, she's Primrose and she's the toy poodle. I, I always thought it was a Papillon mix, but we found out from her DNA test, it's actually a toy poodle mix. Wow, wow. And where yeah. can people find out more about you, Kim? You've got your own website, I believe, and that's dogdoorcanineservices.com. Am I right? Yes, you can go to dogdoorcanineservices.com or dogdoorbehaviorcenter.com. Great. And you also have your book's website, don't you? Your awesome book, which we'll go through in depth. I can't wait to speak about it. Um, yeah. You have a dedicated website for your book, I believe. Yes, meetyourdogbook.com, I believe. And then um, I'm, uh, I've am i got a Facebook page and the dog door has a Facebook page and I, I love to connect with other colleagues via the Facebook. Sure. And if I can just bring this up just to show people where they can purchase your book from. And um, this is a Kindle version of it, uh, Kim, that's right. They also do hardback uh, version as well, yeah. 
Yeah, although the hardback is, I think, pretty much sold out, um, which is wow. crazy. So there, there's going to be another printing, but they have to redesign it first because um, it was printed in a country where they won't allow the maps to be printed again because they don't agree with the reality of the maps. So um, if you have an original copy of the first printing, you have an exclusive little product there. But um, you can, I think, still get a few. I checked yesterday. I thought there were five left on Amazon. Wow. But the Kindle version, no problem. You can get that. No problem. Yeah, you can get the Kindle version and also the audiobook. Oh, great. Oh, Audible, is it on? Yes. Oh, fantastic. Yeah. Great stuff. Great stuff. So, so I'd maybe like to start, and, and we'll definitely talk about your book, and I'm so keen to talk about the legs um, that you've, you've developed. Um, and I wonder if we can maybe start by defining applied behavior analysis and then ethology and having a chat about how you've been able to uh, marry them together in, in your system. But maybe if we start with applied behavior analysis and just have a conversation around that, if you don't mind, Kim. Sure. Yeah. You know, it's interesting because um, in my background um, in applied ethology, you know, behaviorism and the applied behavior analysis model was a big part of my education, you know, in applied ethology. And so, of course, understanding how to do a functional analysis of, you know, the ABCs of behavior and what kind of stage setting antecedents, um, you know, are presented that facilitate a particular behavior uh, as those catalysts and then result in the consequence to either, you know, sustain and reinforce or um, render ineffective or punish that behavior such that the, you know, the animal then changes their behavior accordingly. Um, and so, and of course, within that, all of the other elements of behaviorism and the classical conditioning and, you know, all of the other kind of, you know, terminology and principles therein, um, that actually was when I came into the industry 20 years ago, both in terms of my education in college and then in terms of coming into the field, um, there was still a larger presence of ethology in the industry. And uh, so I kind of went into it thinking that both of these things could play in the same field, you know, and, and uh, appreciating the role of both. But honestly, maybe me a few years, maybe three or four years into my career. So at the, in the early 2000s, um, there started to be a shift towards a kind of exclusivity around applied behavior analysis and behaviorism um, as, as almost the only valid science and this kind of emphasis on the observable and then evidence-based and so kind of data-driven, data-based science as being then considered the only kind of legitimate thing that we could talk about. Uh, whereas a lot of the kinds of uh, contributions of other natural sciences, such as ethology, uh, are, are working from principles that while not invisible across the board, across species, so it's not that they're really that abstract, they're principles that have been observed and are observable across species and have been for decades, um, we might not be observing them in our study of one, right? So like so there might be all these things going on under the hood that again, have been historically documented, observed, you know, phenomenon that we can definitely point to as consistent and universal. Um, but at the same time, a lot of that doesn't fall readily into an exclusive applied behavior analysis framework where those are not considered kind of valid contributors or even points of discussion when we're talking about an animal's behavior because we can't observe them now, you know, and because we can't count them now. And that's where I got genuinely confused. I was just kind of like, wait a minute, why 
why would these things not relate? Why would we just negate, you know, the genetics of an animal and, you know, the history of that animal and the whole concept of niche and habitat and, you know, economy of behavior and affordances and um, the, the elemental relationship between an animal and their conditions in kind of a larger, more ultimate sense evolutionarily, instead of what may have been an accidental hyper fixation on just the more immediate um, antecedents uh, that that present before behavior. And, you know, I, I don't know whether this is something that is true across the board in terms of the application of applied behavior analysis in other species. I can only speak to what I've experienced in the dog world. But in the dog world, it sure seems like there's been an increasing bias towards applied behavior analysis only. Um, at, at the expense of these other really important disciplines. Uh, and that's why, like with the beyond the on operant conversations, we're not trying to say that operant isn't a real thing and that applied behavior analysis is illegitimate at all. Uh, as a matter of fact, I can't see how we can work with behavior without all of those um, contributions of that field. But I also think it's really important that we can go beyond it. Sure. And you have your own YouTube channel called Beyond the Opponent, which I absolutely love as a name. I think it's fantastic. Yeah. Well, I think the YouTube channel might even be the Dog Door or Dog Hacks. I'm not, I think it might be the Dog Door YouTube channel, but the series is the Beyond the Operant series. And, um, you know, we hope to continue to do a lot more of those discussions as we're able. Sure. And I wonder whether that trend towards applied behavior analysis could be viewed as a potential categorical bucket where it maybe limits what we can see beyond applied behavior analysis, and, and I wonder where when we talk about quadrants and operant and classical conditioning, where they may constrain our ability to see what else is going on with that individual. Is that fair to say? Yeah, I mean, that's been my experience. You know, it, it's, and I like Andrew Hale's idea of the merry-go-round, because the whole kind of hyperfixation has, has, I think, pushed us into these weeds that we've gotten lost in where we're just trying to sort out distinctions that frankly don't matter very much when it comes to practically like understanding and working with behavior so that it is healthy and functional for the animal's welfare, which is really the whole point of learning in nature is that to help the animal be functional in their environment in order to be fit and have good welfare and if they can't, then frankly, then they don't survive and reproduce. And so it's nature's own system for solving its own problems. And learning is a mechanism by which that evolution happens. And when we don't realize that, that that's the scope of what's actually happening as we're sitting there working with one behavior and we're just focused on manipulating and changing behavior, especially to these kind of arbitrary standards of what we decide the dog should be doing or shouldn't be doing. Um, we might actually be handicapping that animal in a variety of ways from um, being able to uh, acquire greater welfare for themselves in the conditions that they found themselves in. So it can get really sticky and overwhelming. And I do appreciate that that's maybe one of the reasons why we've had a tendency to fixate on behaviorism is because it seems more tangible, more mathematical. We can use the concepts of operationalizing things to make things seem better organized and clearer. 
Um, and so it's daunting when we say, well, there's this huge iceberg of an antecedent with all of these other, you know, also ultimate factors that are facilitating behavior going on. I think people go, well, where do you put the factors? Like, how do I put it into the math? And sometimes the answer is that there's no good math there. Like it's it's not as clear as a mathematical equation. Um, and that's okay. I think we have to get comfortable realizing that nature is not a problem we are going to solve in an equation. <laughs> nature is much more complicated than that. Um, but legs, at least for me, one of the things that was valuable with coming up with the legs model is it at least gave us a way to talk about it as opposed to just completely drowning in the, you know, overwhelmment of all the different sciences. Yeah. And I always felt the kind of in internal emotional state of, of the dog or the animal wasn't covered enough in ABA and yeah. the behavior rooted in the environment whilst fine and part of, I guess, our, our ability to assess behavior in that way. It's maybe not addressing that internal state. And I kind of felt that you know, there's a lot of additional factors which underpin behavior. And behind every behavior, there's a biological process, which is, you know, a product of natural selection. And and, and also there's multiple causality for behavior too. Is that something mm-hmm. you would agree with, Kim? Uh, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And I think like, you know, when I've listened to people that are more, um, more strict about their adherence to behaviorism and applied behavior analysis, the point will be made that there's room for all of this in applied behavior analysis and that anyone who says otherwise doesn't understand applied behavior analysis. And that might be true in theory, right? It might be true in theory that the antecedents should include one's assessment of that animal's phenotype, their evolution, their biology, um, and all of the principles that would then set the stage for the more immediate antecedents and the behavior that we're concerned with. But my experience has been in practice, few people actually do that. There's no actual accounting for it because of the emphasis on operationalize it and observable behavior only. It just gets kind of dismissed as, well, yes, it's there. So we'll give it lip service that it's a thing. But we can't really do anything with it in the operationalizing process. So we'll just proceed as if. And and frankly, I feel like we're now seeing in the developed world anyway, um, kind of a, uh, a reaching of this extreme boiling point for dogs in modern pet environments where the greater reasons for their behavior problems are that which point to a dysfunction between the intended particular niche and habitat and what that animal's genetic phenotype, you know, design um, uh, wiring is in the first place such that they, they, they don't function well together. And what happens for any animal when you put them in the wrong set of conditions is you get fr- friction and dysfunction. So it's in a way, it's, a, it's kind of a simple explanation for a lot of the behavior problems that we're seeing. But because no one's talking about it, we're almost going round and round trying to manipulate behavior, almost like it's in a vacuum that's disconnected from all of that. And, and that it, it's why we're failing, frankly. It's why most people are going through two, three, four, five, six trainers and then still having the problems they were having in the first place because we're kind of tinkering around with that surface level of what's above the surface on the iceberg, what's perceivable and observable. But then if we're not getting down to the reasons beneath the surface, then we're not actually affecting 
what's going on for that animal. Like you said, I mean, the emotional state has a lot to do with how much of that dysfunction is happening. Absolutely. And you've kind of taken that one step further in ABA, which I absolutely love. And I would really like you to talk through your, your leg system and we have the infographic here. And I wonder if I could pull it up, if you wouldn't mind sure. that. Through, yeah, sure. This is an uh, awesome infographic that um, my good friend, Justine uh, Sherman's just made for me with the family dog. Um, and uh, she was at the Wolf Park seminar a couple of weeks ago. And we uh, talked about my concept of the antecedent iceberg. And she said, you need an infograph for that. And then she very generously made this for us. But um, so, you know, above we'll see the kind of traditional ABCs of behavior that we're all kind of accustomed to seeing. So antecedent behavior consequence. Um, and uh, just for good measure, when we were kind of looking at the whole idea of doing this, I decided to see if one just Googles the ABCs of behavior is it more commonly explained that the antecedent is the immediate preceding facilitator catalyst condition um, that triggers the behavior? Or is it more generally explained as including all of these other factors? Um, and sadly, all, most of the things that I found, I think actually all of the things that I found just in a quick search, um, talked about them as the immediately preceding condition. And so I think that's the way that it's being taught largely. And, and maybe, uh, again, if applied behavior analysis really wants to embrace the, the greater scope of the other sciences, then that's something that internally within that world maybe needs to be addressed if that's not how it's coming across. Um, but one of the ways that I like to kind of connect the dots between ethology and behaviorism um, is with using the legs model to help us understand everything that's actually in that enormous iceberg of the A antecedent. So, um, of course, we have the animals, you know, previous learning that they have had in their life. So what their experiences have been so far, what kinds of meanings and strategies they've picked up along the way, whether or not there's any trauma, um, whether or not they're even in a place to learn as a result of other factors. Um, so what are the experiences of that animal in their personal life that are going to just collectively and then individually, depending on the behavior that we're concerned with, set the stage for what we're seeing now. So being able to just do some detective work through the L, the learning piece, is critical. And that part, I would say, more of us are accustomed to doing in the world of applied behavior analysis to search through that component. Um, the next two components are the ones that I think we most often ignore, uh, the environment and the genetics. And um, ironically, those two things have a really intensive relationship between the two of them as far as how nature works, because the environment creates the pressures and the opportunities historically that create what that animal is genetically in response to those conditions. Um, and so when we're looking at the environment that sets the stage of the antecedent for a particular dog we might be working with, we shouldn't just be looking at immediately what's happening in the environment right now before the behavior, but what's been happening lately in the environment. What are all the other players in the environment, the schedule, the stresses, the stimulation, the affordances, the outlets of expression for natural behavior, um, triggers, et cetera. And then even further back, what has that animal's environment been like in their life so far, even before they've been in this particular home and set of circumstances? Because that creates points of reference either 
um, continuations or disparities for the animal, which can set up some cognitive dissonance for them. Um, and then furthermore, back even before the animal's individual life, what was the original environment that this animal was selected to be a particular fit for in the case of either purebreds or dogs with a large representation of a particular genetic group? Um, what were the environmental specific conditions that that animal was uh, developed to respond to and behave in? Uh, that will be working behind the scenes, despite what we're doing in our fluence, influence, um, to create behaviors uh, without that even going through frontal lobe processing for the animal. Um, and then the genetics piece, of course, is whatever the um, historical environments kind of set the stage for, for this particular animal. In the case of artificial selection, sometimes that just might be what has the animal been bred for. Uh, and most people who think that they're, they know what they're breeding for, if they're just breeding for temperament and pet companionship, if they're preserving breeds that have certain evolutionary behavioral niches, then they might still be breeding a dog for uh, a genetic niche that no longer has the um, environment in which to express those behaviors. As a matter of fact, sometimes we have no acceptance of the behaviors that we've historically designed dogs for, but whatever those genetics are that they bring to the table literally set the stage for how they perceive and then respond to everything in their world. And all of that, again, is bypassing that frontal lobe and executive function. And so without an understanding of the relationship between the environment current and past, and the genetics of this dog, current and past, um, then we're really going to miss the mark on what's happening for this particular dog now. Um, and so when we're doing like our full course in this, um, my full legs applied ethology family dog mediation course, we go through all of this stuff in painstaking detail. And what a fantastic system it really has evolved my thinking um, and, and dog behavior already. Just by applying this to cases I've been working recently, you made some really valuable points there that I wanted to kind of unpack, um, which was owners expected, particularly in, in, in pet dogs, where their expectations of their dog are fairly universal. Is that fair to say? They have this kind of perception of how a dog should behave in their home. And when that dog doesn't behave or doesn't conform to their expectations, that's usually where problems start, right? Yeah, actually, you know, it's funny, I was just literally, literally, like writing about this last night, just stream of consciousness as I was falling asleep, I was thinking about how um, I think the problem with pet dogs really starts in many ways, because we have this expectation that all the dogs are, by definition, pets. And that that is their niche, right? And so think about what a like problematic starting point that is. Because if they were all bred to be pets, frankly, I don't think we'd be having the level of problems that we're having, right? So the reality is that the pet industry started telling a lie about 40 years ago. Maybe not even that long ago. It may have been 30 years ago. I mean, I remember, again, growing up in Atlanta. People will hear me tell this story again. Growing up in Atlanta, the dogs were loose. You know, they they had free roam and then they were still our companions and they knew where they lived and, you know, they had their homes and, and families, but like they had they weren't captive. They still had autonomy. And, you know, my grandmother would tell me that that dog will bite you if you get near the bone. And people know that like dogs run off and they steal things and they raid garbage and they chase squirrels and they are dogs. 
and and all of these different dogs that were bred for these different jobs, it seems like there was a more practical utilitarian understanding of those distinctions. Um, and and weirdly, almost our good intentions of thinking all dogs would rather be pets, right? Like, I think we had really good intentions. And I think the pet industry just kind of rode those good intentions to say, no, you give them all the wonderful things of the indoor luxury lifestyle and you keep them safe by not letting them have that autonomy and, you know, making sure that you're always managing their every move and you're, you're training them to do what you want them to do. Like slowly our expectations just shifted away from something that was a little more realistic at the beginning of my life. And I'm not that old, you know, so this has happened pretty quickly um, to where now it feels like most of our clients really have this conditioned expectation that the dog is just supposed to be a pet and do what they want it to do. Yeah. It's so unrealistic when, when you it's think so about it. unrealistic, yeah. yeah. I mean, we have to remember that our dogs were bred for a purpose, right? They, yeah. Most of them anyway, and very rarely do you see a dog that was actually bred for companionship apart from maybe you know, shih tzus, that type of thing. But if you're going to bring a Hungarian Vizsla, and I'm, I'm seeing that one of my clients is on the stream just now who has a, a Hungarian Vizsla called Floki, or, or I'm also thinking Border Collies, German Shepherds, you know, you bring them into your home, and that might not go so well. Um, is that fair to say, Kim? Yeah, and it's happening so much. As a matter of fact, I think all that's really gotten a lot worse. I mean, I feel like the disconnect, you know, with, with the reality of dogs as who they are and all of their complex histories for all these different particular functions is, is just so divorced from like the average modern family's idea about a dog. And I do have to say us as dog trainers in this industry, we have to take responsibility collectively for some of this messaging because a lot of this kind of marketing of like any dog, any age, any breed, I can do anything and I can make any dog obey your commands with my awesome techniques. Like, we're promoting this narrative that it doesn't matter what their genes are because we're like God or something. So we can like make them do what we want and wave our little behavioral dog trainer magic wand and make them conform. Um, but I would argue that even when that's possible, it's unethical because I think that when you're taking something out of anything that resembles the natural habitat for which they were selected, you're having a quality of life compromise right there. And so the further we get from our discussions around those topics about who is this animal in their own right, like their own integrity as an animal, who are they? What do they bring to the table? And then how do we meet them there? You know, I mean, it's kind of like um, it's so one sided in a way. It's like we think that they're for us. So they're supposed to conform to us and what we want. And there's not a whole lot of room for like what they need or what they want. And it's kind of a sick relationship in a way. Again, I'm not saying people meant to do it, but like imagine being in a relationship with a person where it's like, so the only thing that matters is what I want you to do and what you want and need to do to be happy and healthy. Just, it doesn't, it doesn't enter the picture. So I'm going to train you to conform to my expectations. It's a little weird. Yeah, dysfunctional, I think was yeah. the word they used. Yeah. Really yeah. And, and really I, would, I would like to talk about Floki actually, who is a Hungarian visitor. It's a good example of, you know, visitors were, you know, hunting dogs, pointers, mm -hmm. you know, and uh, bred for a purpose. And, and that may not be conducive to being in a living room, living in a domestic setting um, with little ability to express natural and normal behavior. Right. I mean, you, you know, it, and it's funny because I would say the gun dogs actually are doing better than a lot of the other genetic groups um, with 
some enormous caveats, meaning like they they need to be spending so much time being kinetic, moving outdoors, you know, um, hunting, flushing, seeking. Um, and then also as part of even that ethogram for them are these opportunities to have this kind of complicated or complex, not complicated, but complex working relationship with a person in terms of the communication and the dialogue and the intricacy of, you know, uh, what they were selected for functionally to be able to um, have a, a, a modal action pattern and a predatory sequence that is inhibited with all of these little abilities to pause at different points for communication with a person. Um, they're also then like herding dogs looking to us for more information than some of the other genetic groups of dogs are. Um, and we're not necessarily giving them useful information either. So I, they often can experience a lot of cabin fever. I mean, they're highly athletic and highly intelligent and great problem solvers and cooperative hunters. And we like the idea of them just basically hanging out, you know, by the fireplace and being nice when people come over and then also being willing to stay in a crate for 12 hours a day or, you know, it's ridiculous. Yeah. Very unrealistic, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, so it's all. And I wonder if we could talk maybe more about something in your book, which I really liked you talking about was the kind of reverse anthropomorphism where, mm. you know, we kind of reduce dogs down to not having the same level of cognition or quality or, or, or richness in life. And that can affect our perception of our dogs, can't it, if we view them in that way? Yeah, I, you know, I also was um, just just thinking about this this morning, too, that the idea that it's kind of a contradiction, right? And like, frankly, most real truths have a little bit of paradox to them, you know? And so obviously, it's not helpful to think of dogs as people. I think that's part of what got us into trouble in the first place. You know, do they want to be carried in baby carriers? Do they want to wear diapers and funny clothing and sunglasses? Um, you know, I saw a meme last night where someone put blush on a cat in some meme with another dog. I mean, like we can be really ridiculous, right? Those things don't matter to them. So culturally we are having a lot of differences and we'll always have a lot of differences. Um, and even ethologically in terms of basic signaling and behaviors, definitely we don't greet each other in the same way that dogs do. There's a lot of obvious differences, but the dangers of reverse anthropomorphism are just as high when we make the other animal other than us so less than distinct from such that it rationalizes our ability to treat them in a way that we ourselves would not want to be treated because somehow we think that they're not having an emotional or psychological experience that they aren't um, having opinions and needs and wants and desires that are as powerful for them as what we experience. And they may not process those impulses or those feelings or those um, ideas in the same linguistic cognitive sense that we do, but it doesn't mean that they aren't as well as every other animal having such an experience. Hold on. And this is why, personally, for anyone who's listening, just like in human relationships, we all have our compatibility. My least favorite experience I've had as a dog carer so far has been with my toy mixed breed <laughs> because part of their ethogram is alarm barking at squirrels farting outside. 
Um, and so that happens occasionally and a squirrel farts and we need to know about it. <laughs> but it's such a good example though, because there's so Isn't many it? breeds out there. Yeah. I mean, I'm thinking about some of the cases I dealt with even just today of, you know, Jack Russell Terriers running about a garden, chasing birds, chasing squirrels and yeah. things. And, you know, the one of our adopters asking, you know, is this something we can work on? Can we manage this issue? And you went, well, it's why they were bred in the first place. You know? Right, really right, yeah. right. I mean, and, and for her, here, I'll introduce her to everybody. Um, we found out that she was also 20% a mix of a bunch of different terriers, um, in addition to being um, toy poodle and a bunch of other things. So, But doesn't she look like a little Papillon mix? If her ears were up, you could see sure. it better. But, She's got um, this. But What's her no name? Prim. Prim, that's prim. Yeah, okay, yeah, yeah, that's prim. Good, stuff. yeah. good stuff. But it, um, but it is an important point, and you made that really important point, Kim, about compatibility. Yeah. And it's something that's kind of lost on modern society, I feel, with dogs. It was in a dark place where we're taking maybe really specialist breeds like Belgian Malinois that are kind of the, the phase of, of, of films that are coming out, and they're not going to sit about your living room and just chill and conform to your expectations of a, of a dog, really, are they? No, and it's not even just about that work drive. I mean, something really specific about like the ethogram of a Malinois is that they have been and are still being bred for biting, for bite work. And people are like, oh my gosh, my Malinois is, you know, so bitey. My Malinois puppy is Maligator. I mean, that whole like <laughs> phrase comes from somewhere. Um, and And so like to take, this is just a sticking point for me. When we've, when we breed behaviors into an animal, it's so unethical to try to punish them or frankly, even modify them away from those behaviors because the force of that instinct, if it's an instinct, that reinforcement history is so powerful relative to anything that we're going to introduce as a new kind of reinforcement history. And we're asking them just to kind of like cut that off and they, they can't. And so even if they're able to suppress it, that comes with a cost to their welfare. Sure. And do you think uh, evolution will eventually catch up, you know, in terms of domestic dogs being in this setting? Will evolution finally or eventually sort of catch up with us? Well, I think in some way, shape or form, nature always has her say. But, um, you know, it may be a hundred or a thousand years till we actually see that. And it could take a lot of, you know, the kinds of levels of disasters we're seeing now. You know, when I look at the world and what's happening right now with, you know, the weather and viruses and everything, you just have to wonder, right, whether this is nature's checks and balances trying to solve some of these problems. In in terms of dogs, I think the short-term answer is, is that we know we've handicapped evolution's ability to solve these problems because um, the, the mechanisms by which nature can solve incompatibility issues um, or dysfunctional issues. So like, let's say um, we had a certain species uh, of, I was using this example at the course at Wolf Park. We have a certain species of mouse that was very successful um, in a, uh, maybe let's say like a particular Pacific Island. And um, they were uh, functioning very well there in that particular habitat, but then um, there's an erupted volcano. And so now there's all this volcanic ash all over uh, the island where that volcano erupted. And so the mice had been kind of like a tan color, like tannish cream color, where they were able to camouflage uh, successfully among the like forest floor or whatever that might be. And then now, because there's volcanic ash all over the environment, they're a target 
for all of the birds of prey that want to pick off the little contrasted white or tan mice that are up against that black background. So the color that had been successful previously in those conditions is no longer functional and adaptive for those conditions because we had such a huge conditional change. So the way that nature can solve that problem then is by utilizing some of the mechanisms of things like um, mutation or uh, diversity. So let's say there's one out of every 20 mice that's born black just as a mutation. Well, of course, that mouse is going to be more successful in that new environment because they can camouflage more efficiently uh, in those conditions. And so they will survive and be more likely to reproduce. So in other words, the animal might have to adapt to the conditions. So maybe one possibility would be that the lighter colored mice moved further away. They migrated further away from the sort, the, place where the um, volcano erupted so that they could then be successful again. Um, so adapting to the conditions through migration is one possibility. So adapting through your own behavior is an option. Uh, and then secondly, adapting genetically. So the population that's still near the volcano adapts and they end up being darker colored on the whole because those are the ones that live and are selected for as fit. When we have animals in captivity, and we controlled their breeding and their reproduction genetically. So environmentally, they have no autonomy, so they can't adapt, right? And then genetically, they have no autonomy, so they can't adapt. Everything I just described as nature's operating rules for adapt, migrate, or die, <laughs> um, then, you know, it, it, it doesn't work, basically. So like, you, you can't adapt to the conditions, you can't migrate. Um, and, you know, you can't as a species, solve those own problems over generations. And so right now, what that means is that we have absolutely hobbled evolution in the pet dog population. Yeah, it's so tough on them, and um, it's hard to think of our companion animals as captive animals, isn't it? And I think the expectation from people is that they are pets and they come into our homes, but but in reality, they don't have much choice in their life, and they are more akin to captive animals, right? Well, yeah, and I think you know if we think about even what a definition of a pet is, they are captive. You know, like um, I've I have kids, and over the course of their life, of course, they've brought home a variety of random little critters that they've wanted to keep in their rooms, and then we go through this whole thing of trying to make sure that they have an enriched habitat. And I'll tell you, none of those habitats were ever sufficient for any animal in captivity that I've ever had as a pet. There, it, it's horrible. They suffer, and you know, at a certain point, we were like, "No more. We're not doing this. This isn't fair. We don't want to be a part of all this." Yes, the children love having pets. There's something about us that is, of course, really intrigued by it. I think because we're living in captivity, frankly, in some sense. I mean, not to the same exclusive sense of having lost our autonomy, but I think we feel a little disconnected from our roots and our the natural world too. And something about bringing in a pet makes us feel reconnected with that. Um, but it's selfish. It's one-sided. We're getting something out of that. That animal is probably not getting much out of that when they have lost all that autonomy. So I think the idea is, is that we're aiming towards a set of circumstances where, yes, the animal is a companion sharing life with us, and we get the part out of it that we were wanting and craving for that pet relationship, but they're also an equal party of value in the relationship where we are, as we would do with a child, responsible for meeting their psychological, behavioral, environmental needs. So it begs the question then, if we have all these types of dogs that don't have modern conditions 
in which they fit. And we are not going to accept their ethogram as we designed it. Why are we breeding them? So true. Yeah, so true. And, and they're having to adjust to us way more than we're having to adjust to them. That's a fair way of putting it. Particularly if you're, you know, taking even a puppy to a certain extent, but even more so in rescue, where we're taking dogs mm-hmm. from difficult backgrounds and bringing them into our homes. They're having to do so much more adjustment to us than we are to them, is that fair to say? Yeah, and I mean, I'm sure you have a lot of stories from your experience in rescue, but like, gosh, your heart just bleeds for them, right? Like, I think this is part of what what helped me put together at first in a quite kind of depressive catharsis of realization about what was actually happening for most pet dogs was being in rescue and welfare and sheltering where you see these dogs that are literally being surrendered and in some cases euthanized for behaviors that are natural and normal for them. And in some cases that we even artificially selected into them and we call it a behavior problem or a disorder and then we judge it and then either we pass them off to someone else, which just keeps re-traumatizing the poor things over and over again. Like it's not no fault of their own. They don't even have any control over it. And then, you know, my heart just bleeds for every single one of those dogs that I come across and work with. Yeah, so true. And, and I think about some of the cases recently where we've seen dogs coming from, you know, maybe Eastern Europe and they're making that journey across in a van, they're into quarantine, they're then into a, a rescue, you know, and into a shelter and then into a home subsequently after that. Right. You're not going to see a huge amount of adjusted behavior from that particular animal, right? No, their point of reference is completely dissonant from the conditions they're going to find themselves in. And, you know, if I, I, this is where that reverse anthropomorphism thing is either problematic or we can recognize it and use it. So using analogies for how would you feel if this is where this is really helpful, because this is true for all organisms. Imagine if you were taken from everything that you knew as a point of reference, even if those weren't the greatest conditions. And then you find yourself in a completely foreign set of conditions, almost like you've landed on Mars, where nothing that you're perceiving makes sense in terms of what it means. And then none of the behavioral strategies that you have employed so far work. That's madness. That's insanity. That's dysfunction. That's the life of many pet dogs. So true. I'm thinking Gene Donaldson's culture clash example. Exactly. You know, yeah. So true. Everyone read that because it's such a good perspective. And I think anthropomorphism has its place where we can yeah. empathize with our dogs. Um, it just maybe can sometimes go a bit far um, for, for sure. But, but I think that Gene Donaldson example is probably the best one of that, isn't it? Mm-hmm. So good. So good. Yeah. And, and like you said, I mean, we should use obviously common sense about thinking what are the shared characteristics between various species? And then what are the things that are differentiating us, you know, um, because there are, are those differences. But it's really important to be able to see so that we have the real empathy. We have the actual compassion to understand how they would feel. Um, I've, I've talked about this a number of times in, in other um, podcasts, but there was a there's a movie called Room. Have you seen that movie? What was that called, sorry? Room. No, I've not seen that, no. Okay, so for, for the people listening, um, it's a really powerful movie to help us understand how we would feel if we were taken from a set of conditions, if the, even if they're really poor, that was all that we knew, and then we were put in a set of conditions that didn't make any sense. The story of it is basically a young woman that was abducted when she was a girl 
um, by a man who then kept her prisoner in a garden shed in his backyard um, and then repeatedly raped her. And at some point she gives birth to a little boy who who she then raises in the garden shed. And it's the only life he's ever known. And she goes out of her way to try to normalize it so that he has any kind of healthy experience. And so for him, the world, as he knows it, and in his mind, all that exists is the room. And interesting enough, his trauma starts when they escape because he doesn't understand any of it. He has no points of reference. He has no precedence in which to, you know, build on or act upon in this environment. And um, that's something that when you see that play out, for me, I immediately think about all of the dogs that we work with that are completely ill-equipped in the conditions that they find themselves in, whether because of the genetic point of reference not working or whether it is because their life so far point of reference didn't equip them for it. And, and pulling dogs from third world countries off the street is also another example of that, where we think in all of our good intentions that we're doing them a favor when we're actually creating a lot of distress. Absolutely. And I think about my dog Floyd is a really great example of that where he spent, I think, the first few months kind of isolated, not socialized, not exposed, and then nearly two years in a kennel. Mm-hmm. And and when he, he came to me, his behavior was, you know, what you would probably deem to be pathological, but ultimately he was in an abnormal environment and his behavior reflected that, right? Yeah, right. Right. And then, you know, that's a lot of work in front of us, right? That's another example bringing us back to our whole original conversation about like when we're looking at the ABCs of behavior, it's so much bigger than what's immediately preceding the behavior, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Can you imagine trying to assess Floyd, who's my Labrador, assess his behavior, you know, a week of coming out of that type of condition in my home and doing an ABC analysis on his behavior and discounting all of that journey to where he was, you know, to, to that day. Right. Yeah, yeah. And now like. imagine on top of that, his genetic journey was that of like a Malinois, right? <laughs> and how much that would have complicated the entire situation. And if we discard all that, we're bound to misunderstand, misdiagnose and mistreat what's in front of us, aren't we? For sure. And behavior consultants are it's a difficult position, isn't it, sometimes to be in mm-hmm. because you're expected to fix these these issues There's an expectation that you go in and you make things better and that you fix behavior and there's that mm-hmm. expectation placed on you. I find that quite challenging. I think in your podcast, I, w- I watched Andrew Hale talk lovely about this, about the expectation of taking that on board, of having to fix these issues where some of them might not be fixable. And it's not even really an appropriate term, right? Yeah. And that's why I'm kind of like, we need a new term either, even other than dog training, because I feel like the whole idea of dog training just immediately implies that it's our job to reprogram it and fix it. And I think it's setting a cultural expectation of fix it. So I don't know whether family dog mediation feels like the fit for absolutely everybody, but for me, it's the best thing that I've come up with that says, you know, our job is to come in You've got this party and then you've got this party and they have really different needs and everybody gets to matter, you know? And, and so everyone, we're just trying to get them to understand and perceive and respect each other for those differences and then find a functional way for both of them to move forward. But that's really different than just putting the onus on us to train the dog so that it complies with their commands. Like, I hate that. I think it's so unhelpful. Yeah, it really is. It's such a tough expectation to place on someone anyway, but we have a lot of um, TV shows that kind of set that expectation. Mm. There's enough here that in comes the magic behavior consultant right. and everything's fine and, and, and we can sort of fix all these issues. And I think it's so unfair, both on client expectation and ultimately on the dog itself. 
And it's actually, uh, to your point there, it's not fair for the public either. I don't blame the public. That's another problematic fallout that we're creating as professionals in this industry is we say, okay, well, it's not the dog. And it's not me because I'm giving you all these instructions or whatever, and you're not following it. And the client then has all of these really unrealistic expectations and they won't do the work. Well, where did they get those expectations in the first place? Who put those in their mind? Culture. What part of culture? Pretty much the pet industry. And yes, television. But like the pet industry is part of the problem. It's a big part of the problem because we either challenge the narrative with confidence and say, that's not realistic. Or we accidentally endorse it just by participating in it. Yeah. And it's like the myth. It's kind of like, it's all it's all how you raise them. And it's mm. so false. It's so false. Right. Yeah. And that's why I love legs is it just kind of supplements what we're doing. It gives you a way to be able to look into the the history of, of, of not just that behavior, but that animal and the revolution. I think it's just a fantastic way. It really has benefited me and my clients already. And, and so much of the behavior consultant's role now is not necessarily about training behaviors, right? It's trying to synergize you know, trying yes. to bring harmony in the relationship. And yeah. uh, I had Suzanne Claudier on uh, last week who was talking about, you know, relationship-centered training, which I absolutely love. Love and it. Put it at the heart of it in terms of meeting them in the middle. You know, yep. it's not going to be perfect sometimes. And for Floyd, it certainly wasn't. Uh, it was far from perfect for a long, long time. Yeah. Um, but again, my expectations, it was such a valuable learning experience for me to take Floyd out of that type of uh, environment and where he was. And sometimes that's they're the best teachers, right? Because then you can live with that animal in your home and it's like, this is not great and there's lots of problem behavior. And I spoke to Susan Friedman about that, actually. Is it a better term than problem behavior? It is such a label mm-hmm. and it affects the lens of how we view that behavior right. through, through. Yeah. But do you have a better term for it? Does anyone? No, what I keep doing is I just keep putting behavior problems in quotes just yeah. to kind of imply that we're you're, you're calling them, as a culture, we're calling them behavior problems but they're not behavior problems. Like that's just something that we say, but they're actually evidence of function or dysfunction, right? And so like, ultimately I wanna be able to to know that like without having my dogs trained to do a downstay when they're in my office, they're here sleeping. Like, yes, we get the occasional Tourette's thing that might happen once a day, but by and large, this is not an operant process here. And there, I mean, if there were a behavior problem, I guess I would say I'd have to be curious about what was going on that was creating that. Right. So rather than just thinking of it, like it's a problem, so I should fix it by training it, being curious about what's actually really feeding that underneath the surface and all those things in that big fat ultimate antecedent iceberg um, that are setting that stage, you know, that's critical. And, and that is all our job as professionals. And then also as dog lovers, once we know better to tell to our friends and neighbors and vets and just talk with people about, it's our job to dispel these myths and to not be part of the problem, even passively or accidentally, just by kind of like continuing to endorse the narrative of, oh, here's your laundry list of all the things you want me to train your dog to do because you want them. Yeah. Like, we have to stop. And that is hard. Like, I mean, I do this for a living too, right? Like all the other trainers and behavior consultants. And I know what it's like to get that pressure from people where they're like, but this is what you're supposed to do. I'm paying you to do this job. And it took me a lot of years to get comfortable and figure out how to kindly and effectively communicate to them the reality of the situation. So my biggest job, as I see it, is adjusting expectations and the reality that they're both experiencing in that relationship 
Um, and honestly, at this point, most of my clients are actually so relieved because I'm giving them permission to look at it differently. Um, I think we think that they they actually want to have to do all this like dog training because they feel like they're supposed to. But I don't think most people actually want to do it. I think most people just want to get along with their dogs. Totally. It's that cultural expectation, isn't it? Yeah. You know, this is how my dogs should behave on walks. They should walk walk one pace off the right-hand side, looking at me and making eye contact and doing all these kind of lovely obedience behaviors. And I, I don't right. really like that term that much either. Now, no. obedience, you know, it's not particularly, uh, I don't think that appropriate. And I, I agree, most of the time is spent with empathizing with the client and then bringing them into a set of, I guess, realistic goals with their dogs so that they can have some harmony in the relationship in the household. And I really think about aggression when you're talking about this kind of stuff because it's such a, it's so prevalent, aggression, and so widely misunderstood. And and yeah. I think a lot of people think, you know, this is genetic, you know, this is a genetic trait within my dog, whereas we're trying to adjust it to say, look, it is a normal behavioral response, it is a behavioral strategy, is that fair to say? It has a genetic component, like all behavior, but Ultimately, it's a strategy. Is that right? Yeah, aggression is functional in nature, and particularly ritualized aggression is yeah. is functional in nature. And so, you know, there's there's so many layers to the kinds of aggression that we perceive and experience with our dogs. Some of them being things that the dog isn't even experiencing as aggression, but just modal action patterns. Whether it's a modified predatory sequence for hunting or herding or whatever that we're seeing that comes out like a well-placed bite to the leg, even if it wasn't intended to be that in the first place. And, but that's not even something that um, is abnormal, you know, or like a genetic problem. It's just part of their ethogram. And then also functionally for the individual, for every individual, being able to communicate about how they're feeling, their frustrations, their challenges, their confusion, their fear, um, you know, their anxiety about things by use of ritualized signaling, which does include what humans experience as aggression, that's natural. That's universal across the animal kingdom. Um, you know, when I have clients that feel like an animal should be euthanized because that animal snaps at them when they go to force the animal to move from point A to point B, when that animal is maybe new to them, and terrified and has been neglected so far, but the person feels I should be able to grab my dog, even if I've only had it for a few months or whatever, and, and move it when I need to, because I'm alpha and I'm dominant and it's supposed to obey me. And then the dog defends themselves out of fear and we are euthanizing those dogs. Yeah, like point. it's crazy. Yeah, we misinterpret yeah. it, don't we? You know, and I think that's my where I've been. My journey is trying to bring people kind of into more realistic expectation of the dog's behavior. You know, what's yeah. normal and uh, what's adaptive to them. Right, aggression is a very adaptive trait. It works every yeah. time, more or less, uh, for for a dog. Yeah, it's very functional, and that's why it's so universal across species. Like you have to be able to communicate boundaries. Um, to protect your resources, your territory, your social members, um, to communicate discomfort, create stability in relationships. It's not the evil that we think it is. And frankly, it's bizarre because we accept it in wild animals. We don't expect that a wild animal wouldn't be aggressive if we just randomly grabbed a fox out of my yard and decided we're going to try to give it a bath. It will be aggressive. Sure. We know other people are aggressive when threatened, but dogs 
they're not allowed to be aggressive under it's any circumstances. Yeah, that's what I hear that word. It's unacceptable. My dog growled at me, and that's not acceptable. Right. Really. Unacceptable. He growled it. It growled at my friend who came over. Okay, let's be curious about why and what's happening. Now, I don't expect anyone to live in a dysfunctional situation where their quality of life is compromised and they're walking on eggshells scared of their own dog because that dog has taken a few chunks out of them. I don't think that we should value dogs above people any more than we should value people above dogs. But most of the situations in which people as you say, are thinking it's completely unacceptable are not those situations where people are legitimately terrified of their dogs. They simply just don't understand what's going on and they have unrealistic expectations. Sure, totally. I think that's where ABA can be quite quite useful, you know, in operationalizing mm-hmm. that behavior and having a look at the conditions, the antecedents, yes. and what's reinforcing that behavior. Mm-hmm. But as with your lovely leg system, it just supplements all of that. And I wonder, you, you gave a really great example in your book where you talked through like an example of a case and, and you were labeling things like that's learning, that's environment, that's mm-hmm. genetic, and that's self. I, I wondered on that word self, do you ever get any pushback from, from the community on that word self? It could be interpreted um, as being anthropomorphic. Um, as, as a you self. know, it's funny that you say that because there's a few things that I was expecting to get pushback on with the book that I didn't. And that's one of mm-hmm. them. Right. Um, so I, I didn't get any pushback about that. And I thought I would get a lot more pushback on the on the genetic generalizations. I tried to be really careful to make sure that uh, I was communicating that nothing's predictive. And it doesn't mean that, you know, because a dog is this breed of dog, then they will be whatever. It's just kind of like increased likelihoods based on what the selections were. Um, but that there's still a lot of variety there. But I thought I'd get some heat for that. And and that whole idea that a dog even has a self. But like, for me, as someone who's just been so obsessed with and studying nature for my whole life, I don't understand how people can look at another sentient organism and think it doesn't have its own individual experience. 100%. 100%. You just need to live with a dog for a day to realize that they have their own idiosyncrasies, they have their own little personalities, you know, and, and that really does come under that term, the, the self. But yeah. it's easily, I guess, it's, it's, it's maybe a difficult concept for some people in, in terms of the way you view dog behavior in that way but they are sovereign right these are sentient beings and we have to respect that and i guess that's maybe where you see not a lot of respect given to that that, that kind of sovereignty Is that fair to say? yeah i i think we're very uncomfortable because of our historical conditioning in thinking that animals are having an experience because then the magnitude of the implications for our responsibility to be stewards of their good experience and to be compassionate is suddenly in our face. And that makes us uncomfortable because then it's like, wait a minute, if all of the things are feeling and experiencing, then I can't rationalize some of my behavior anymore. You know, then I have to carry with me when I leave my house, the weight of knowing how my dog is feeling in that crate for 10 hours a day, as opposed to just going out and having a good time. So I think it's almost been functional. It's an interesting hypothesis. It's almost been functional for us to ignore those implications so that we can proceed with what we want to do and what's, you know, successful in our own kind of strategizing in life. Um, but it's at their expense. And this is why for me, it's like, it's one thing to do what you need to do to be functional as a species in your environment. And humans deserve to be able to follow those evolutionary guidelines as well as all the other species. But whenever we take something and we make it captive, 
it's not an even playing field anymore. You know, it's one thing if we're arguing over a territory, even as two different species, and we have to compete over it because at the end of the day, that's what species are doing is there's limited resources and not everybody survives and reproduces. And so everyone is going to step up and take care of their own and their own needs. And, and that makes sense. That's functional. It's not that everything gets to live in nature. It's, it's not that fairy tale at all, but it's so different when we have completely hijacked the experience of another organism put it in a box literally and figuratively and said you get no agency in other words you get no life and i know that most people are not intending to do that and i am not here to try to make the general public feel bad about it like it is nobody's fault it's a collective thing that has happened that now we have to just recognize so that we can shift because I think most people don't want that for our dogs. People love their pets. They love their dogs. It is one of the only industries that has not remotely taken a hit in the last four decades. It just continues to go up and up. People will spend money on their dogs, even when they don't spend money on themselves. So we clearly love them. But there's so much perpetual misunderstanding happening that I think the public is legit confused thinking, well, why is it not working when I've hired five trainers? And they think the trainer is somehow failing and the, you know, everything that they're hearing, reading, seeing online, et cetera, is all confusing them all the more. And none of it's really pointing to this, this central problem. It's so difficult for people, isn't it? I really feel for them in terms of trying to research dog training methods. And you jump, oh, it's terrible, isn't it? You jump online and you just get such misinformation and dangerous advice too, which I don't know how we deal with that. It's such a big problem that I really don't know how we deal with it. And, and we yeah. You know, I well, I, I have this kind of secret hope that legs will be kind of a backdoor of a solution, because I think what we've been doing is professionals have just been arguing about methodology ad nauseum, yeah. and it's not clearly getting us anywhere and solving any problem because there's no one method that's just going to like solve all of these problems that aren't about methodology. And I kind of am hoping that the implications of accepting legs, whatever someone's current methodology is starts to make them completely revolutionize their own practice away from a strictly operant paradigm anyway, so that they get so good at looking at the why and understanding the reasons for behavior that they can address those fundamental needs much more effectively and working even with the client expectations such that oftentimes it renders training obsolete. You don't even have to do it. Sure. And I'm trying to think about cases recently where I've actually went in and trained an operant behavior. It's actually quite rare now, unless somebody has a very specific need, they contact me about, you know, poor recall, but even then, or, or walking nicely on lead, it's never as simple as that, really. Mm-hmm. They contact no. you about so many factors underpinning that, that it turns into a behavior case anyway. Yeah. So yeah. Right. More and more, right? I mean, you've been doing this for quite some time too. And doesn't it seem like the behavior, the behavior cases are like much higher now than they used to be it seems it used to be like the dysfunctional behavior was maybe like just a smaller percentage of the calls we would get and now it seems like the majority explosion yeah Yeah. Yeah. an epidemic potentially and and behavior problems coming through and you know we're thinking about areas like particularly separation related behaviors that we're seeing a spike Mm -hmm. in in in, in uk anyway due to to lockdown i'm sure you are too Mm -hmm. And, and a lot of the queries i'm getting is like you know i've had my dog for a year they were a lockdown puppy I've now left them for half an hour and they've lost their mind, you know, and it's like, well, yeah, that's, that's not going to be easy to, to, to treat. Um, yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and again, we just have to completely redefine our entire approach just to be more comprehensive. And so, you know, 
I, I know that you feel the same way, but um, I think it's so important just for me to say again, nothing about anything I'm trying to do with legs is against applied behavior analysis or behaviorism. I embrace it a hundred percent. I just think that we have to step back and pull back our perception to be able to integrate all these other sciences. I completely agree. And, and ABA has its place and it's, mm-hmm. it's forensic, you know, and as right. precise, yeah, it's like you maybe view it as a kind of microanalysis in ABA, mm-hmm. but it's legs is a macroanalysis, it's everything mm-hmm. else, it's all the other factors. And I think that's a really nice way of looking at it. And I thought about yeah. that. And it's something I'll be promoting. And as I say, it's helped me so much in recent cases, understand where the origins of those behaviours are coming from, not just from an operant perspective. So I'll thank you for that. Um, and I'll be promoting it as, as much as I can. And I'd recommend everyone to pick up your book. I thought it was fantastic. I think, you know, not just for dog professionals, but for owners themselves to understand what's going on with their dog it can only be a good thing, Kim. So fantastic job on, on the book. Thank and we've maybe, I, I appreciate we've been over an hour now and we're probably coming to a natural conclusion there. All I'll say is it's been fantastic speaking to you. Thank you so much. Um, and, and as you have continued to promote the leg system and, and your book uh, also. Thank so, you. So thank you much, very much for your time. And in the chat, if you could just show Kim some, some love, I'm sure you will anyway. Fantastic <laughs> stuff, Kim, okay? Yeah, thank you so much. This has just been a blast. You're more than welcome. I'll speak to you soon. All right, take care. Bye for now. Bye-bye. Bye.